So let's hear from Romans chapter 11, verses 11 to 36. Okay, this is the Word of God. So I ask, did they, that is Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous... Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, uh, sorry, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may, or who has been his counsellor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You know, one of the questions that uh, people exploring the Christian faith often have 
is uh, how should we think about uh, the people of Israel today? I mean, historically, they were God's people, but what is their status with God now? You know, now that many of them, them do not actually believe in uh, Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, does God have an ongoing plan for the people of Israel today? Uh, it's a question that many have. Uh, people even ask, you know, how, how should we as Christians relate to unbelieving Jews? And this is actually a topic that's attracted a huge variety of opinions uh, today. Uh, for example, on the one hand, there are uh, good gospel-centred ministries that are seeking to reach Jewish people for Jesus. You know, we've had uh, Lawrence Hirsch in our church preaching for us. Uh, he's from an organisation called Celebrate Messiah, and that's an organisation that operates within Melbourne, and they're seeking to evangelise the Jewish people, especially in the Caulfield region, uh, to tell them about uh, the Messiah. Uh, another organisation which is doing that is um, Christian Witness to Israel, another great organisation seeking to bring the gospel uh, to Jewish people in the world. But then on, on the other hand, there's other people who say that, that evangelising Jews is actually a form of anti-Semitism because they say that what you're doing, you're trying to change the Jews' beliefs which is going to undermine their culture and you're actually going to take away their Jewishness. And so they said, it's a, it's a bad thing to do. You should leave them to have their own uh, Jewish opinions. And then there are others who say uh, that one way we can relate to Jewish people is to embrace their practices and their traditions, that if we, you know, if we, we start uh, adopting their festivals, that we can encounter God in a unique way through these things, because after all, God himself uh, gave those uh, traditions. And then there are others who say uh, supporting the modern nation of Israel is actually a Christian obligation. And so there's all these ideas about the, the place of Jewish people today and how, how do we relate to them, you know, how do we relate to, to Jews who don't believe the gospel? Uh, a whole lot of questions. And it can be quite confusing. Well, this passage in Romans 11 it actually gives us a paradigm to think through all of these things. And a very helpful uh, passage because it actually shows us what we should think about Jewish people today, uh, unbelieving Jews, and what God's plan for them actually is. So you look at verse 11, Paul, he asks, you know, he's talking about the Jewish people who didn't believe the gospel. He says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? which is a way of saying, you know, has God just given up on them? Has he kind of washed his hands clean? So that's it for those guys. They had their go. They missed out. So that's it. Forget them. What does Paul say? By no means. <laughs> By no means, no. Uh, God still has big plans for people from Israel. That's the point of this passage. Okay, God isn't done with them. Yes, lots of Jews have rejected the Messiah, but God still has a plan for them. And in this passage, Paul tells us three things about God's plan for Israel. He tells us, first of all, the pattern of God's plan for Israel. Then he gives us a picture of the plan. And then he tells us something puzzling about that plan. So the pattern, the picture, the puzzle. 
kind of sounds like a fun passage. Uh, so let's have a look at these three things. First, Paul tells us the pattern of God's plan for Israel, and that's in verses 11 to 15. And uh, here we see that God has a three-step pattern for how he's going to uh, save people from Israel. And Paul mentions this three-step pattern over and over in the passage. I think he, he, you know, he circles back over it. It could be like ten times. I didn't um, take the time to count every time Paul goes over it. But he just keeps going, he keeps going back over and over and over, this three-step pattern for God's plan for people from Israel. But he first of all gives us the pattern in summary form right up the front in verse 11. So here we, we see, you know, Paul asks, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, now he, listen to the pattern. Step one, through their trespass. Okay, that's step one. Step two, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And step three, so as to make Israel jealous. So this is the three-step pattern of God's plan for Israel. Firstly, Israel trespasses, which is another way of saying that they rejected the gospel when it came to them. You know, they didn't believe in the Messiah. That's, that's the first thing that happens. Second, their rejection of the gospel meant that the gospel then went out to Gentiles, which is people who aren't Jewish people. And Gentile people became Christians. They followed Jesus. And then the third step is that because Gentiles got saved, that, that actually makes some people from Israel jealous when they see that, and that softens them to actually listening to the gospel. And then as a result, some Jewish people get saved. And so that's, that's a three-step pattern for how God is going to reach uh, Jewish people right through the history of, um, between Christ's first and second coming. Now, we actually see this three-step pattern at work in Paul's mission. Now, he, he was a, an apostle to the Gentiles, and yet when you look at the way the Apostle Paul went about evangelising people, he follows this same pattern. Uh, remember, Matt read from, uh, one, uh, sorry, from Acts 18, and uh, that's just one example, where Paul, he would go into a city, in that case it was Corinth, and the first thing Paul would always do whenever he went into a new city was he would go to the local synagogue and he would proclaim the good news of Jesus. And nearly every time when Paul did that, a handful of Jewish people would actually believe the gospel and they would become followers of Jesus. But by and large, most of the Jewish community would harden their heart to the message, they would reject the gospel they would oppose Paul, often violently, and so what would Paul do? He would turn his attention to the Gentile community. He'd go out into the marketplace, he'd go down to the river, he'd go wherever he could find people and start talking about Jesus. And lots of non-Jewish people, Gentiles, were converted uh, through Paul's ministry. And we can actually see God's hand at work in this. Okay, imagine if when, when the gospel went out, you know, Jesus came, the gospel goes out. Imagine if just Jewish people believed it. You know, Paul went into the synagogue, the whole synagogue was converted and that was it. What would happen? It would probably like the church would just be a Jewish thing. It would almost be like just a renewal movement within the Jewish community. 
and they would probably just keep to themselves because uh, that's what they always did. Instead, verse 12 says that because of their trespass, or in other words, because they rejected the gospel, it means riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles. See, their rejection meant that the rest of the world got to hear the good news about Jesus. But it didn't stop there because there's a third step and it's this third step that really excited the Apostle Paul. Because when Gentile people received the grace of God in Christ, it had the effect of making the Jews jealous, which Paul said would lead to some of them being saved. And it's quite surprising what Paul says in verses 13 to 14 because he actually says that that is one of the goals of his ministry, to make Jewish people jealous. Uh, which is interesting because you know, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, which makes you think that that's his priority, just go to the Gentiles, tell them the gospel. But in verses 13 to 14, Paul is saying, well, actually, I have almost like a secret agenda. <laughs> my real agenda is actually to reach my own people. You know, that's where my heart's really at. And so, I, you know, I'm going to the Gentiles, but I'm hoping that when they come to Christ, that that's going to make the Jewish people jealous and then that will actually soften some of them. And so you see that in verse 13. See, he says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now, why would jealousy lead to some Jews being saved? I mean, jealousy sounds like a bad thing. Well, what Paul is talking about, it's kind of like, um, some of you have probably had this experience, if you've got a lot of little kids, and in the house, uh, it always goes like this, there's, there's a toy that that's, you know, just sort of gets ignored for a while, it sits on the shelf for months and months, gathering dust, and then one day, one child just comes along and just happens to pick up this toy and start playing with it. And, you know, because it hasn't been played with for so long, it's like, wow, it's so exciting all of a sudden. And then what happens? All hell breaks loose. A massive fight starts because all of a sudden every child wants to play with this, this forgotten toy all at once. And as a parent, you're trying to, uh, you know, negotiate a peace deal with these uh, psychopathic children. Um, <laughs> And you get nowhere, but you know that the only reason everyone wants to play with the toy at once is not because the toy itself is any good. I mean, it's been hanging around gathering dust for months. The reason everyone wants to play with it at once is because they could see the other child enjoying it. And that enjoyment is what they want. They feel like, hey, I want that. I'm missing out. See, it's jealousy. Now, in that case, it's a, a bad... Uh, form of jealousy because it's um, you know a selfish form, but that same dynamic can actually happen in a good way. Okay, if the thing that you want is good, and if it's something that God actually wants you to have, then that dynamic of jealousy, you know, seeing something good, wishing you had it, there are cases where that is a good thing. And I'll give you an example. Do you know sometimes you you meet someone? And you, you see in them a really fruitful prayer life. And you see that and you think, oh man, I wish I had that. See, that's a good thing because prayer is good. God wants us to have it. And so when we see it in someone else, it's, it's like a good form of jealousy. 
You go, I, I feel like I'm missing out. I've got to have that. And it's the same with salvation. See, when Jewish people saw Gentiles enjoying this grace-based relationship with the God of Israel, they were seeing something they'd never experienced before. And when they saw the way the gospel had transformed the Gentile community, they were seeing something that their legalism could never produce. And it was deeply attractive to them. They felt like they were missing out. And they wanted a piece of that. See, it made them jealous. And that really excited the Apostle Paul because that was God's chosen way, God's pattern for actually saving Jewish people. It was God's way of softening their hearts. Because remember, when the gospel first came to them, what did they do? They hardened their hearts. And yet God had this strategy that when the Jews saw the Gentiles receive the gospel and the transformation that took place, it softened those hard hearts. And it opened the gospel. Some of them would end up getting saved through the Gentiles. Now, there is one implication that we can think about, um, you know, how this passage applies to us today. And that is, when the gospel comes to a community, it does have this transformation, uh, this transformative effect. Uh, when, you can tell when people really get the gospel because it changes us. It changes us in some incredible ways. It creates something that you can't get any, any other way. And, uh, you know, Paul's talking about reaching Jewish people with the gospel. Now, I'm not sure how many opportunities we have uh, in this area that we live in. Like, I, like, I'm not aware of how many Jewish people live in our communities, in our suburbs and stuff. And, you know, if there are some, then there's an opportunity to, to reach them for Christ. Um, but what we need to realise is this, this dynamic of it, the gospel coming and transforming people, transforming the church community, that actually has an impact not just on Jewish folk, but on all sorts of people from all kinds of nations. Uh, you know, if the gospel is what is shaping us, that can't go unnoticed. You know, if, we're, if, if we are a church that has grasped the gospel, that it actually has got into our hearts and it's begun to transform the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we relate to each other, that is going to have a huge impact. Uh, you know, especially if you invite your friends along to church and they come along and they're like, man, what is with these people? They're so different in a good way. Um, I actually have had someone say to me, you know, this, this church, it's, it's very different to my sporting club. You know, I don't hear everyone just grumbling about everything all the time, um, which was encouraging to hear. Uh, yeah, someone said, you know, you're not at each other's throats over political issues. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? How refreshing is that? Uh, and so that's encouraging. You know, what, what is it like to come into a community and you realise, hey, these people genuinely care about each other? Wow. That, don't you want to be a part of that? You know, that, that's, that's how... That's how God softens people's hearts to the good news of Jesus. You know, people are thinking, what is with these people? What have they got that makes them like that? I want some of that. See, God uses that to soften people's hearts to the gospel. Now, we're actually going to get into that a lot over the next few chapters in Romans because 
when you get to Romans 12, that's where Paul starts to show, look, this is how the gospel transforms you as individuals. It's how it transforms you as a community. And so we're going to think a lot more about that in the coming weeks. But what we need to see here from this passage is that God still has a plan for the people of Israel. He still has a plan. He's not done with them yet. And the pattern that he uses, it's one that that he's been working out right through history, ever since the first coming of Christ, when, when so many Jews rejected Jesus. And that meant the gospel can go out to the nations. Well, now what's happening? As Jewish people throughout the world are encountering encountering the gospel through, through the nations, some of them are being saved. It's happening right now. And that's exciting. And uh, so what we actually see is that God's plan for Israel is actually bound up with his plan for Gentiles. The two go together. Okay, one, one, you know, one leads to blessing for the other, but then because they're blessed, that will lead to blessing uh, for them. So that's, that's God's plan or God's pattern uh, for his um, plan for Israel. Now, the second thing this passage teaches us is <clears throat> that we have a picture, a picture of the plan. And the picture, it's in verses 16 to 17, sorry, verses 16 to 24. And this is where um, Paul illustrates this plan with this picture of a tree, an olive tree. And it's an olive tree that undergoes a lot of changes. You know, some branches are cut out, other ones are grafted in, and then after that, some of the original ones are grafted back in again. So let's just look at this picture. Now, it can be a little bit confusing at times, especially at the beginning, beginning because Paul starts with dough, and then it morphs into a tree, <laughs> and then the tree has all these other things going on. So a little bit hard to follow, but it is all making the same point. So just look at verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the, the root who supports you. Okay, so what is this tree all about? Well, the most important thing to realise is that the tree represents Israel. Okay, the tree represents Israel, and that would come as no surprise to Jewish people because the Old Testament talks about God's people using the um, metaphor of an olive tree in um, Jeremiah and Hosea. So the tree is Israel, and yet what happens to the tree? Some of the branches are broken off. Now, what is that? What does that represent? Well, it represents the, the unbelieving Jews being broken off out of Israel. See, natu- it says natural branches were broken off. Natural branches refers to those who are from Israel. And verse 20 says, because they didn't believe, they're broken off. See, unbelief cut them off. In fact, that's a theme that you, you read a lot about in the Old Testament. Okay, unbelief, you're cut off. Cut off from the people of God. So here's this same idea here with branches. Uh, but what about the, um, 
Actually, just before I go on to that, this is something that Paul has been saying over and over again in chapters 9 to 11. That just to belong to a, a group of people, you know, just to belong to the Israelite nation, to be a Jew ethnically, that wasn't enough to, be, to actually belong to God, truly. So to be a true Israelite, you had to have faith in the gospel promise. Otherwise, you'd be um, broken off. And it's actually still like that today. Okay, it is still like that today. Uh, God's people are never just those who are outwardly attached to his community. So you can be someone who has been born into a Christian family, someone who has been baptised, someone who even has your name on the membership roll, and yet if you don't have faith in Jesus, you're actually not one of God's own people. See, the key point that this, this olive tree pictures is that unbelieving branches are broken off and cut out. See, just belonging outwardly uh, isn't enough. You have to belong truly, which is by faith. You've got to be connected by faith. Okay, so branches are cut off, but then it says there are wild olive shoots grafted in. And what does that represent? Well, it should be obvious it represents Gentiles who do believe the gospel. They're grafted into the tree. And verse 18 says they now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Which makes us ask, well, what is the root then? What does the root stand for? And the root, a lot of people say it stands for the patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that's kind of where this tree begins. But I think it's more accurate to say it's actually the gospel promise as given to Abraham. Because the gospel promise to Abraham was that in you, all of the families of earth shall be blessed. And here we can see it pictured as families from all different nations are being grafted into this one tree that begins uh, right back uh, with Abraham, but, but particularly the faith of Abraham. <clears throat> now, Paul does an interesting thing with this um, picture of an olive tree in verses 19 to 24. The reason he gives it is actually to humble the Gentiles. And it, it's interesting, as you go through the letter of Romans, the closer you get to the end, you realise that there actually were some tensions between uh, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers in the Church of Rome. Uh, it seems as though what happened is that the, the Gentile Christians had become more prominent in the church. You know, that they, they were the ones who, who had stepped into leadership positions. Uh, they might have been um, bigger in number and uh, even more mature in the faith. And so what happened is that the Gentile believers were starting to feel superior to the Jewish believers in the church. And that was causing uh, certain tensions. And so what Paul is doing, he's saying to them, you know, look at this tree picture, right? You don't support the, the tree. You don't support the root. The root supports you. He's putting Gentiles back in their place. They're the ones, they're the unnatural branches grafted in. And so Paul's saying, you've got to be careful that you don't make the same mistake that the unbelieving Jews made, you know, thinking that, that your ethnicity gives you a spiritual edge. 
That's where Paul goes with this illustration. Uh, he, he wants everyone to realise it's only ever by grace that we belong to God's people. Okay? It's nothing about us, nothing about how clever we are or, or how much we've grown in our knowledge or anything. That's not what makes God accept us. It's only grace. You know, it's that, he's, that Christ has died for us. That's why we belong. We must never forget that. So that's the point Paul makes. But together, what we see here is this, this tree. It's a picture of believing Gentiles and believing Jews all grafted into the one tree. One tree that represents all God's saved people. That's actually something we shouldn't miss here. Notice there is only one tree. There's only one tree. And the one tree represents everyone, both Jew and Gentile. Okay, it's, it, there's, there's not two trees. It's not like there's a tree that represents Israel and uh, you know, that got so far, but then God stopped that and started a new tree called the church. No, no, there's only one tree and everyone's grafted into the one tree. There's one people, one group. <clears throat> and it's interesting that the Gentiles are the ones who are grafted in. They're the wild ones. <laughs> Uh, which I think is the other way to how we think of it. You know, when we think of the church, we think of, you know, if, if we reach Jews for Christ, that they're going to be grafted into the church. But Paul says it's the other way around. No, no, the tree is Israel. And Gentiles are grafted in. Which is interesting. That actually changes the way we think about the church. What is the church? The church actually is the true Israel. That's what we see here because there's only one tree. And so that means the Israel of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament are not two separate entities. They're not two separate people groups. They're not two separate plans or two separate ways of saving people. They're one and the same. Okay, the church is actually a continuation of Israel. And you see that reflected right through the New Testament. There's another letter that Paul wrote where there was some serious Jew and Gentile tensions. And that's the letter to the Galatians. And in that letter, Paul said to them, Oi, guys, remember, you're all Abraham's offspring. At the end of the letter to the Galatians, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. That's in chapter 6, verse 16. And Ephesians 2 makes this same point. That what is, what is the church? It is the one body. It's the one temple. It's the one household. It's the one city made up of who? Israel and Gentiles. One group. And so the New Testament actually presents the church as a continuation of uh, God's true Israelites. And so in one sense, we can actually say the church didn't actually begin in the book of Acts. It's just the continuation of God's people right across the ages. You know, before the coming of Christ, it was God's people who were looking forward to the Saviour to come. Since Jesus has come, it's God's people looking back. But it's still the same people. We are the, the Israel of God. <clears throat> and so God's plan for Jewish people is to save them, to be part of the church, and that, that was always the plan. 
You know, God, God doesn't have a separate plan for them. You know, he, he's not wanting to set up, you know, the nation of Israel again and, and that the way to be saved as a Jew is to go back to Israel and, you know, to adopt all those old laws and things. Those things have all been fulfilled in Christ. No, no, God's plan is that Jews would be saved through Gentiles, the church, that they would all be gathered in. And uh, that's what this picture represents. God's, God's big family tree of all these people connected by faith in Jesus. And so that's the picture. Okay, so the pattern, God's pattern, is to reach Jews through the witness of Gentiles. God, the picture is this one big family of believers. But then third, we get to the puzzle. And uh, I know that this is a very deep passage, so I hope <laughs> you can um, bear with me for one more point, which is shorter than the other ones. But this, this last point, the puzzle of God's plan, and it really is a puzzle. Now, Paul calls it a mystery, which is different to a puzzle, but I'll, I'll tell you why I'm calling it a puzzle in a moment. But first of all, notice verse uh, 25. So Paul is still talking to Gentiles. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And whenever Paul tells a mystery in his letters, it's never this, this thing that's impossible to, to understand. See, that's the way we use the word mystery. You know, if I tell you, oh, here's this mystery, it's because you can't, you can't really grasp it. But when Paul uses the word mystery, he's using it to say, here's an aspect of the gospel that used to be hidden, but now it's made clear. Okay, once hidden, now revealed. Or to put it another way, a mystery in Paul's writings is an aspect of the gospel that was in shadow form in the Old Testament, but now is made plain in the new with the coming of Jesus. And, and this idea of you know, Jews and Gentiles both making up one family, that, that was a mystery. Okay? Because right through the Old Testament, it was in shadow form. There's all these hints. Even with Abraham, you know, through you, all families on earth will be blessed. So it was always there, but it was never clear what that meant until Jesus finally came and the gospel went out to the nations. But here, when Paul tells us the mystery, and you read what the mystery is in verses 25 and 26, we realise that the mystery actually is that pattern from the first point. Remember that three-step pattern? See, look, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. That's step one. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's step two. And what's step three? And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, this step three, this is, this is the big surprise. All Israel will be saved. And this is why I call this point the puzzle of God's plan. Because that statement, that all Israel will be saved, that is puzzling. And that has puzzled people ever since Paul wrote it. <laughs> uh, in fact, if you read... Um, I've got a, a stack of commentaries on Romans um, you know, to help me navigate some of these uh, tricky areas. And if you look up the commentaries on this verse, I think I've got like 10 commentaries and they all say a different thing. I don't think any of them agree. And one of the commentaries lays out six different views of this verse and within that, those six different views, there are six views of the six different views. And so you just, that's crazy. So what do you do? 
Or you go back to the verse and you go, hang on, what is clear about this? What can we say that is clear? And what is clear is here Paul is summing up everything he's been saying about how God's going to save Jewish people. Because it says, in this way all Israel will be saved. In other words, at the end of history, when Christ finally comes again, the three-step pattern of saving people, the result will be all Israel will be saved. So that's the first thing that's clear. The second thing that's clear is that when Paul says all Israel, it can't mean all ethnic Israel. Because right through chapters 9 to 11, Paul has been saying that, uh, that not, not, all, not all ethnic Jews will be saved because a lot of them have rejected the gospel. And Paul didn't expect that they all would be saved. He even said that he was only hoping to save some in verse 14. So, that's, so therefore, all Israel, it must be talking about all the elect from within Israel, you know, the remnant idea. And the other thing that's clear is when Paul says all Israel will be saved, it's going to be that they're going to be saved the only way that God ever saved someone, through faith in Christ. That's the only way. Which is what Paul goes on to reaffirm in the the rest of the passage. But however it plays out, the thing that is is very clear is that the outcome is certain. What's the outcome? All, Israel, okay? Every one of God's elect will all be saved. None will be left, none will be missing. The full number of Gentiles and the full number of Jews will all be saved and together we'll celebrate the wonders of God's grace for all of eternity. And see, that's where Paul ends this chapter, with a celebration. See, look at verses 33 to 36. Here, Paul, what's he doing? He's celebrating God's grace. He's celebrating the gospel. Because in the gospel you have the wisdom of God on display. And in the gospel you have the grace of God on display, that that God is the one who does it all. And that's a fitting conclusion to talking about how how God brings Jews and Gentiles together into this one big family. Because it's all his work, it's his grace. But it's also a fitting conclusion to everything Paul has been saying in Romans up until this point. Because Romans is all about God's salvation. Okay, the theme of Romans is the gospel of God. God is the one who invented it. He's the one who came up with this incredible plan to save sinners. That's not something we came up with. If we came up with the gospel, who would be the hero of the story? We would. It'd be about how how we overcame this great problem of sin. You know, we made it, look at us. That would be our gospel. (laughs) But the gospel of God is God does it all. Okay, we are lost in sin. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. God in his mercy sent his son who paid for all of our sin on the cross, reconciled us to him and now through faith we have the promise of salvation. We have eternal life in Christ. See, it's all God's work from beginning to end. So who gets the glory? To him be glory forever. Amen. And I think that there is the test. Have you understood the gospel? 
How do you know? Because all the glory goes to God. See? Your life is completely reordered when you know the gospel. And God is the one who gets all the glory. And that's what, that's what a church needs. You know, we all need to be humbled under the gospel. God alone gets all the glory. See, that's what will make us a community that stands out in the world. That's what will make us attractive. When we're not on about us, but we're on about God, pointing to him. See, that's what will make the world wake up and see that there is a wonderful God of salvation.